वसुदेवसुत कंसचाणुरमदनम देवकी परमानंदम कृष्णम वंदे जगद्गुरो श्री रामकृष्ण सेड दैट द गोल ऑफ ह्यूमन लाइफ इज गॉड रियलाइजेशन स्वामी विवेकानंद सेड द गोल ऑफ ह्यूमन लाइफ इज टू मैनिफेस्ट द डिविनिटी विद इन अस नाउ इफ वी आर एस दैट our first reaction is well that might be the that maybe that is the goal of human life it should be the goal of human life but that's not really my goal at the moment what is my goal at the moment my goal at the moment is um, i guess i need to earn money and take care of the family and my job and my my role in community maintain good health be happy in general but all of those things if you analyze if you generalize what are we trying to do what we are trying to do is we are trying to be happy we are trying to overcome suffering we are trying to attain happiness and peace attainment of happiness and overcoming suffering that is our prime motivation whether you are um doing it in a worldly sense or in a spiritual sense the deep motivation the underlying uh, motivation is always the same at first we think that there is uh, happiness in these activities that we do in the world outside i am unhappy i think i am poor therefore i am unhappy if i become rich if i earn so much money i'll be happier i think i am alone and i'm not married or i do not have friends i'm unhappy so if i have friends or i get married and have a family then i'll be happy i think because i am a very ordinary person nobody knows me nobody values me therefore i'm unhappy if i get name and fame if i do something and uh, become famous in some way uh, then i'll be happy if people know me and recognize me to be special in all these ways whatever the ways we think we are actually pursuing happiness and we think that the this happiness lies outside this bhagavad gita it is also a book about how to become really happy how to overcome suffering come on in there's space here come come how to overcome suffering but it tells us that what you are looking for there is a way of becoming happy permanently deeply so there is a way of overcoming suffering permanently completely transcending suffering and that is the goal of the bhagavad gita but it tells us this thing is not where you are looking for it this thing which will give you real happiness which will help help you to overcome suffering is within us and that is called whatever you call it atman the self brahman the absolute reality god whatever you call it we are looking in the wrong place in those external activities so the bhagavad gita is what is called a moksha shastra a scripture dealing with moksha what is moksha see all the external activities pursuits to get happiness from something outside they are broadly classified under three heads one is the pursuit of kama kama literally means pleasure we pursue pleasure because we think that's what's going to give us happiness our first attempt at being happy suppose i i want i want a burst of happiness so maybe i go out and uh, eat a cookie or uh, i go out and meet a friend or something like that which is giving me some pleasure so pleasure is also a, we are trying to get happiness through pleasure that's one way another way is through acquiring wealth um, acquiring uh, worldly power and achievement and status this is called artha kama artha pleasure and 
literally wealth. Artha means literally wealth, but also in a wider sense, all kinds of worldly uh, accomplishment. And beyond that, there is another word, dharma. It's a difficult word to pin down, because if you see the Sanskrit dictionary, it will have a whole page of meanings. Um, it means morality, decency, it means um, um, uh, religion, all of that, dharma. But here it means, specifically it means, all the good that we do, in a wider sense. And in the Vedantic framework, this dharma, the good that we do, generates good karma for us, good results for us. And if you have good karma, you will get more of artha and karma, pleasure and wealth. So all these three, dharma, artha, karma, if you see our, if we look at our activities, activities of ordinary people in the world, they are all, they can all of those multiple activities, whatever we are doing, deliberately, consciously pursuing, all of them can be categorized, classified under these three goals. Spirituality starts, Gita starts, when we realize it's not possible. We have been trying and trying and trying, but we are unable to be really happy in those three pursuits. So real happiness is promised here. Religion begins, spirituality begins when we realize when the, the promise of all spiritualities, promise of all religions, is that there is something, really something. There exists something. Call it nirvana, moksha, salvation, whatever you call it. Different religions, different names. But it is uniformly a state where you attain real happiness. It is uniformly a state where you permanently overcome suffering. That is called moksha. So the Gita is a text dealing with moksha. It's very important to understand this at the very beginning. It's not really a text dealing with how to party and have fun in life. Not at all. It's not a text teaching you how to become multimillionaires. It might help, but it's not meant for that. So suppose somebody asks, well, if I do this, will, my, uh, will it harm my career? Will I be able to rise high in the corporate ladder? The Gita does not promise you that. It's not meant for that. It, don't worry, you will not slip down the corporate ladder. But this is not meant to teach you that. For that you need to go to a career coach or something like that. Krishna is not doing that here. Krishna is not even talking about conventional religion. How do I worship God so that I get more of worldly things, more of worldly pleasure, more of worldly achievement? No. Krishna here in the Bhagavad Gita is talking about, is teaching about moksha. The true spirituality, the attainment of true bliss, and overcoming of suffering. The Buddha's quest that there is suffering. Is there a solution to this suffering? That was the Buddha's quest. That is at the source of Buddhism. It's a similar thing here. So moksha. The book is about moksha. Why I'm saying this is that um, um, Sometimes you hear, and it's more and more popular in India, Bhagavad Gita for management. Uh, now one must, be, one must strike a careful balance here. I've given talks on that in India. But, and it's true, a lot of things which are said here are very wise and very useful for sustainable uh, organizations, for a good family life, for a better personal life. They're all very useful, really, really good advice. But the point here is not better management or uh, improving the bottom line or something like that, or any other thing even. It talks about food, which it's not about diet. It's, it does talk about food. It, it's not about exercise. Uh, it does talk about um, um, you know, the proper exercise or something. Uh, it's not even about stress management through meditation. It talks about meditation, but all of that it talks about for attainment of moksha, enlightenment, true spirituality. So that's one thing we have to keep in mind. What is this book about? Really it is about that. Incidentally, it's not about war. It's an easy mistake to make in the modern time, especially in the West. Nobody makes this mistake in India. Though the story is set in the midst of a civil war, the great Mahabharata war, the epic. And literally this is taught in the battlefield. 
Arjuna drives the warrior prince, uh, uh, Krishna drives the warrior prince Arjuna's chariot. And so it's in the middle of the battlefield, just before the war is about to begin. And Krishna teaches Arjuna. So is he encouraging to him to fight? Is it about war? No, not at all. How do you know this if you ask? The Gita has a long tradition of commentaries. Going back at least to the, I mean, depending on what we have, the texts which were available to us, it goes back at least 1400 years to Shankaracharya's commentary, the first available commentary which we have. But even Shankaracharya there mentions other older commentaries. Nowhere in any of the commentaries is it ever about warfare. Bhagavad Gita is never ever about uh, about nobody mentions Shankaracharya, Ramanuja, Madhva, last f 15 centuries people have been writing in India, commentaries about it. Nobody even pays the least attention to the war itself. That's the context, that's the story. So it should be taken as symbolic, the, your battle in life, the struggle in life that we, we have to face, how to lead life in the midst of this world. In fact, when you read the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, the Master Mahasaya, the author of the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, the first two questions he asks, really when they really have a proper conversation, the second visit, two questions he asks, the first two questions he asks, those are the essential questions of spiritual life. And they are the basic teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, the theme of the Bhagavad Gita. What are the two questions? M asks Sri Ramakrishna, how do I keep my mind on God? Number one. Number two, how do I live in this world? So spirituality, that's one, the central idea. But also how do I manifest it? How do I carry on my life after that? How do I manifest that spirituality in my day-to-day -day life? These are the two central themes. And that's basically the theme of Bhagavad Gita also. How do I attain to real spirituality? How do I get enlightenment, moksha, nirvana, whatever you call it? How do I get that? And second, how do I live my life? Arjuna being a warrior in the middle of a crisis, a, a battlefield. So the, how he lives his life is basically deals with that. But it does not mean that Krishna is interested in urging us to fight wars. No commentator in the last 1400 years, 1500 years has ever said anything like that. Even the modern commentators, they don't say that. I find it peculiar that some scholars, modern scholars, especially in the West, immediately their attention goes towards that. Oh, Krishna encouraged Arjuna to fight. How strange. Why would uh, uh, you know, religion be connected to a war? Your um, teacher, or the, the god Krishna, encourages Arjuna to fight a war and violence. I'm sorry, but that's just a reflection of the enormous guilt in the Western mind of the last 100 years or so, 200 years or so, I mean, industrial scale warfare that the West has seen. So the attention is always towards war and peace. And everything goes to that. So it is not about fighting wars, absolutely not. So that's one thing that should not be brought up again. Um, Mahatma Gandhi, he, one of the main sources of his uh, inspiration was the Bhagavad Gita and the sources of his non-violent struggle for independence. So it is not about warfare. That's the background story. Also, it's not even about the story itself. You know the story, Many, I think you are all acquainted with the great epic Mahabharata. It's a, somebody said it's the greatest tale ever told. Um, but it's very simply summarized. An ancient uh, royal household, and it's like a civil war between cousins. The five brothers, Pandavas, the five brothers, uh, they are the good guys, the heroes. And their cousins, the hundred evil cousins, the Kauravas, uh, they are the bad guys. The Kauravas, led by Duryodhana, they take away the kingdom, which is rightfully the, uh, goes to the eldest of the Pandavas. And the uh, five brothers are put through a lot of torture and a uh, lot of 
pain and suffering by their evil cousins. And finally, all matters come to a climax in the great battle, which the epic ends horribly for everybody concerned because it ends in this huge battle called the Mahabharata War. So 18-day battle at the end of the whole story, towards the end of the whole story. So it's a huge, huge epic. But the Bhagavad Gita, which forms a part of that epic, is not really related to that story. What the Pandavas did and what the Kauravas did, who was right and who was wrong, Indians can go on discussing. We have been discussing it for centuries and millennia. It's an evergreen topic. And somebody said, you know, all the movies of Bollywood and all, if you trace back there, there are themes taken from Mahabharata and Ramayana, basically. We have been repeating that for millennia now. But the Gita is not concerned with that really. That's just the background story. Uh, what happened in the war, who was right, who was wrong, that also does not interest us. Why would it interest us in 21st century in, in Manhattan? Why would we study the Gita if it was some ancient half mythological um, story about um, princes in an ancient royal dynasty in India? Not interesting for us. So what it deals with is spirituality and our life here. What does it teach? What does the Gita speak about? How to attain enlightenment? How to attain moksha? How to attain true happiness and go beyond suffering? How broadly the main paths of spiritual practice? The path of knowledge, the path of meditation, the path of love, the path of service, path of work, jnana yoga, bhakti yoga, karma yoga, raja yoga, the four yogas which Vivekananda spoke about. These are the broad themes of the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna teaches this to Arjuna. And Bhagavad Gita is a beautiful book where all of these are harmonized. Sri Ramakrishna himself, you know, was not particularly fond of book learning. He didn't think too highly of it. He would make fun of, you know, he would call them mere scholars who just learn books by rote. But he really admired the Bhagavad Gita. So he would say in Bengali, Gita Khubboi. Uh, Gita is a very good, is a great book. Gita is a great book. And he would say, if you say Gita ten times, that is the essence of the Gita, what it becomes. Gita, what is Gita ten times? If you repeat, if you quickly say Gita ten times, Gita, 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 it becomes Tagi. Gita, Gita, it becomes Tagi. Tagi literally means renunciation, Tyaga. So, giving up worldliness for spirituality, that renunciation, that is what is the essence of Bhagavad Gita. So, that's what Sri Ramakrishna says. He summarizes that. So, that's what it is about. The spiritual teachings of Krishna to Arjuna. Um... Many years ago, I came across the notes of um, Swami Bhaskareshwaranji's classes. He was the Swami, a disciple of Swami Shivananda, a great um, Swami Bhaskareshwaranji himself, Bhaskareshwarananda, uh, himself was regarded in his own lifetime as an enlightened person. I never saw him. That was a long time before my time. Um, his classes were famous. He founded our Ramakrishna Mission Ashram in, in Nagpur in Nagpur. Uh, now, I knew some of the Swamis who attended his classes. When they were novices, they used to attend his classes. And they would take meticulous notes of his classes. His classes were very powerful. I mean, they would like generate a spiritual atmosphere up by themselves. So some people would take, some of the, those who attended the classes would take notes. I came across the notes of the first Gita class he gave. And there, I remember, he starts off by saying, keep these two things in mind when you study the Bhagavad Gita. First, why am I studying it? Second, who is teaching? First, why am I studying it? In Sanskrit, prayojanam, the need. Why am I studying it? Always keep this vibrating within yourself, that I am a spiritual seeker. I am in suffering in samsara. I want liberation, salvation, moksha, nirvana, whatever you call it. I want that. 
I want my life to be elevated. I want that bliss and transcendence of suffering. I want it. Therefore, I am here. What else could it be? It could be anything else. Somebody might be, you know, um, other questions like, for example, he says in his, in his introductory uh, teachings, he says, for example, um, interesting questions like, was the Bhagavad Gita an uh, integral part of the Mahabharata or was it interpolated later on? In, this is a question that, that scholars ask. And by the way, now they have come to a sort of consensus. It is a part of the Mahabharata. We could have told you that thousands of years ago. Anyway, that's a general understanding. Or you can ask the question that uh, before the beginning of the battle, how could Krishna have given this long 18 chapters teaching to Arjuna in the middle of the battlefield? Is it practical? Did Krishna speak in uh, verses, Sanskrit verses? In the <laughs> no, we are not interested. W was it histo How historical was it? The whole thing. Where does it fit in Indian history? Now, these are interesting questions. They are not questions we are interested in. They're good, interesting things for scholars to research, but that's not going to be the focus of our study. The focus of our study is the spiritual teachings of Krishna to Arjuna, which we will use in our own lives for our own enlightenment. So that's what he mentions. Second is, keep in mind who is speaking. It's not a professor who's talking about his pet philosophy. It's not a pundit. It's not even a saint, a very spiritual person. It is God himself, Bhagavan Krishna, who is telling us. Imagine if you could sit at the feet of the Buddha, at the feet of Jesus Christ and listen directly to the teachings. You sit in front of Sri Ramakrishna and listen to the teachings directly from an avatar. So that is what is happening here. Krishna gives these teachings to Arjuna and through Arjuna to all of us. Shankaracharya in his introduction to the Bhagavad Gita, he says that Arjuna was selected to represent all of us because giving it to a fit student like Arjuna ensures that the teaching will have a wide dissemination. So basically Krishna is speaking to us across thousands of years uh, and giving us this teaching. So remember who is teaching. So that will give you the proper attitude to approach these teachings. Now, the Bhagavad Gita forms a part of the root texts of Vedanta. What is Vedanta? Definition, Vedanta Nama Upanishad Pramanam. Vedanta is the spiritual teachings, are the teachings of the Upanishads. So Upanishads form part of the Vedas. Because they form the final teachings of the Vedas, the end of the Vedas in one sense, or the highest teachings of the Vedas, they are called Vedanta, end of the Veda in that sense. So once a little boy asked me, um, you know, Christians study the Bible and um, Muslims study the Quran. You say that for Hindus, the Vedas are the uh, core texts, but we don't study the Vedas. Even the Upanishads, which form a spiritual teachings of the Vedas, how many of them, how many of us study that? Very little, very few. So I said to him, but you, and those kids were chanting the Gita daily, so, so you studied the Gita, right? He said, yes. In that case, you are studying the essence of the Vedas. You are studying the essence of the, the Vedanta. Because the Bhagavad Gita contains the essential teachings of the Upanishads. The essence of Vedanta, if there's one book you should study, if you want to know Hinduism, if you want to know Vedanta, it is definitely the Bhagavad Gita. In fact, after the commentaries written by Shankaracharya and other masters following him, um, Bhagavad Gita has come to be, if you want one book for Hinduism, because it's such a vast array of uh, scriptural literature, if you want one book, it, this has become the book. Bhagavad Gita has become the book. So I said to that kid, that if you study the Gita, you study the Vedas and Vedanta, all the essential teachings you know. In fact, in one of the verses praising the Gita, it is said, the Upanishads are the milk cows, the cows. And Krishna is the milkman. And Arjuna is the thirsty calf. Uh, and uh, 
the milk of the cows, the milk of the Upanishads is this Bhagavad Gita. So it is the essence of the Upanishads. Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita, Brahma Sutra are together known as the root texts of Vedanta, the foundational texts of Vedanta. In Sanskrit, Prasthana Trayam, the triple foundation, or more precisely the triple canon of, of uh, Vedanta. Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita and Brahma Sutras. Upanishads are called Shruti Prasthana. Shruti means the Veda themselves. So the original texts, the Shruti. The Bhagavad Gita is called Smriti Prasthana. Smriti because it's called Smriti because it forms part of the Mahabharata. It does not form part of the Vedas themselves. Because Krishna comes much later in the Mahabharata and he gives the teachings to Arjuna. So it is called Smriti Prasthana, part of the Smriti. And Brahma Sutra, which need not concern us now, you don't know how lucky you are. That's, that's a text which is very difficult. That, that takes care of the philosophical aspects. So it is called Nyaya Prasthana. Nyaya means logic or reasoning. So these three, the Upanishads are the core teachings, but they are very mystical, poetical, uh, profound and dense. The Bhagavad Gita takes that and teaches it in lucid language. Still Sanskrit, but much more lucid, much more understandable. And also very practical. The Bhagavad Gita is very practical. Uh, it is a very um, comprehensive book of spirituality. Before this we were reading Aparokshanubhuti, which is a very specialized kind of book. One Swami compared other texts and Bhagavad Gita this way. In Hindi there is a word uh, Pagdandi that means a narrow lane in the hills. or So it's a narrow lane. See the other texts are narrow lanes. They are specific methods, specific uh, philosophical points of view. But he says the Bhagavad Gita is a royal road. Prasthana literally means a royal road. So it's like a big highway, a freeway. It is very comprehensive. It answers many, many questions about spiritual life which were not taken up in books like Siddhrik Drishya Viveka or Aparokshanubhuti or the other Advaitic texts. Those are very specific. So you have these three texts and there is a long commentarial tradition which I will just touch upon before I go on. Many great masters wrote explanations of Bhagavad Gita and it's still continuing even till today. The earliest that we have, why I'm saying we have, there were other commentaries before Shankaracharya, but we don't have them. Shankaracharya himself mentions, though this book has been commented upon earlier, to the best of my knowledge, I will give a brief commentary on it. Brief, uh, brief commentary, it's a really big book. A brief commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, uh, I will give a brief commentary on it, uh, because it's very profound, he says. Shankaracharya wrote the Bhagavad Gita, and explain the Bhagavad Gita in the framework of Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta. Couple of hundred years, three hundred years later, Ramanujacharya comes along and writes his beautiful commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. It explains it in the framework of Vishishta Advaita Vedanta, qualified monism. That's another philosophical framework. Madhvacharya comes along about a couple of hundred years after uh, Ramanuja and writes his commentary on the framework with the framework of Dvaita Vedanta, dualistic Vedanta, and numerous commentaries. A commentary, for example, the one I am holding right here is by somebody called Sridhar Swami, who, uh, who came 700 years ago and was in the tradition of Shankaracharya. But his commentary is a simpler commentary and also not so heavily leaning to the path of knowledge. He also has a beautiful blending of devotion and all of that in his commentary. Another great commentary was written by Madhusudan Saraswati, who came about 600 years ago, was contemporary of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. His beautiful, very profound and very big commentary, Gurhartha Deepika, the lamp of profound illumination, or illumination of the profound secret. Um, that is a fantastic commentary which I shall personally draw upon when uh, one of the things I shall draw upon. Um, then there is, there are other commentaries also, many other commentaries. Many of these I will use. Down to the modern age, Swami Abhedananda, who was here in the Vedanta Society of New York, 
Many people do not know. He has a complete commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. Every, every verse of it. It's not easily available in English. Um, there are commentaries in many Indian languages. And of course now a lot of commentaries in English. Swami Ranganathanandaji, who was the 13th president of the Ramakrishna order. He has an extensive commentary in uh, three volumes on the Bhagavad Gita. And it goes. So it goes. Just a few weeks ago, I came across a new commentary written by a professor here. It's called God Song. It was, uh, it was reviewed in New York Times. It's not a commentary, it's a new translation, a free translation of the Bhagavad Gita. So, God Song. In fact, God Song is the literal translation of the name Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita, if you literally translate directly, uh, the song of, the, of, of God or song of uh, God, that's one way. Edwin Arnold said the song of God. But literally if you translate, it, it is God's song. So, and this, and I don't know why nobody thought of it earlier. It, it sounds nice. I heard Yale University this summer. This summer Yale University is going to conduct a month-long camp. A month-long um, summer camp on the Bhagavad Gita. So a professor is going to teach that. It's for limited to scholars who are enrolling for it. And they have taken up a project of collecting all English translation available all over the world of the Bhagavad Gita to make a new collection of Bhagavad Gita there in Yale University, in New Haven here. So it goes. And I'm sure there will be many more commentaries to come in the future. One question is sometimes raised by modern scholars is this. Taking up Shankaracharya's commentary, the most famous one. Shankaracharya, I have read well-known scholars writing this, Shankaracharya tries to explain the Bhagavad Gita in terms of Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta. But very clearly the uh, Bhagavad Gita does not, is not comfortable, is not a comfortable fit. Advaita Vedanta does not fit the Bhagavad Gita comfortably. Many things seem to be not quite in the line of thought of Advaita Vedanta. You see where this kind of thinking goes wrong. They think that the Bhagavad Gita has to fit to one particular worldview. Advaita Vedanta, Dvaita Vedanta, Vishishta Advaita. It cannot. It is the source of all of these. One Swami, Ram Sukhdas, who wrote his beautiful commentary on Bhagavad Gita, one of the best ones in recent times, called Sadhak Sanjeevani uh, in Hindi. He was an expert on the Bhagavad Gita. He spent his whole life studying, meditating, teaching the Bhagavad Gita till the age of 104. He passed away a few years ago. His book, um, I had a copy in India, but it's so huge. It's this thick, this thick, and this big. So I couldn't get it here. Uh, but it's a nice commentary in Hindi. It's been translated into English also, I think. Anyhow, in his introduction he says, the Bhagavad Gita is, an, is like a very deep and old well from which many people have drawn water. So... Shankaracharya takes a meaning out of it, Madhvacharya takes another meaning out of it, Ramanuja takes a meaning out of it, and the Bhagavad Gita equally supports all of them. See, the intellectual framework, a philosophical framework, comes later, downstream. Before that comes the revelation from God, from the teaching from God. Out of that, you want to fit it into a framework, that will come later. And that's fine. You are free to do that. So the great teachers have given different frameworks and they are all valuable. Very, they have beautiful insights. It's not that one is right and the other is wrong. You can get beautiful insights from, not only from Shankara, but from Ramanuja, from Madhva, from all of the others, from Sridhara. So that's one more point I wanted to make. Now, before we start, the background story, as I said, it's known to all. The Mahabharata, the great war is about to begin. And uh, on one side are the good guys, Pandavas, and their advisor. God himself is their advisor. The five brothers. The third of them is Arjuna, the great hero of the whole battle, you might say. Um, and Krishna decides to be his charioteer. And, you know, the way... Hindu epics are. There are stories and stories behind stories and stories behind those stories and so on. You know, all these Hindu epics, the Puranas, they are huge books. And you know how they begin? How they, they're full of stories about some particular deity or some particular personality. But you know how they begin? They all begin from the beginning. The beginning means the creation of the universe. 
So it starts with God creating the universe, and then, then the story starts. So you can imagine, they're all very, very long stories. Anyhow, how did Krishna come to be driving the chariot, the war chariot of Arjuna? The story goes that um, Krishna, by the, who by that time has its own kingdom, the two opposing uh, forces, the evil ones led by Duryodhana and the good ones, Arjuna, both of them went to Krishna to ask for his help. Now here, these stories show the difference between spirituality and worldliness. Um, Duryodhana sits near Krishna. Oh, Krishna was taking a nap. India, afternoon. So, <laughs> even God takes a nap there. Siesta. Yes, he's taking a siesta. Now, both of them arrive, the two cousins. I'm sure they glared at each other. And they walked in at the same time to ask for help from Krishna. And Duryodhana, haughty, he goes and sits next to Krishna's head. You know, just in the near the bed where Krishna's head is on the pillow. Arjuna, with devotion, goes and sits near Krishna's feet. So Krishna, when he opens his eyes, he sees Arjuna first. Yeah. You see, it's instructive. <laughs> and he asks, what do you want? And Duryodhana is afraid that, oh no, now the, the Arjuna is going to ask for Krishna's um, you know, army and all of that, you know, all the power and wealth of his kingdom, and I'll lose out. Arjuna says, I want you. I just want you. And Krishna says, all right, but I will not fight. I will not fight on your side. I'm not going to use a weapon. But still, I want you on my side. I'm paraphrasing, shortening the story, believe me. <laughs> Duryodhana is ecstatic. He says, what a fool. Just, he just wants Krishna. No matter how good he is, it's just one man. And he says to Krishna that, well, I want your armies, your kingdom, the power, the, the economic and military power of your kingdom, I want it on my side. Krishna said, done. You take all the, all the power, the, the military power of my kingdom, I just go just by myself to be on, on their side. Which is ultimately, it is Arjuna who is the wiser. Because if God is on your side, everything else is on your side. No matter, in a worldly sense, you may be the loser. But... Ultimately, you're going to come out, come out ahead because the Lord himself is on your side. So that's how Krishna comes to be Arjuna's charioteer. And he says, I will not fight. And at the beginning of the war, he takes the chariot and Arjuna says, with, with uh, bravado, he says, let me see who, who are these guys who come to fight with me. Take my chariot and show me who are they who have come to fight with me. Now what's happening is, Back in the capital of the kingdom, which they are all fighting over, all these uh, brothers, the old king, Dhritarashtra, who is blind, see all troubles, he's, he's blind to the facts of life because of his inordinate love for his evil, you know, ne'er-to-do-well children, it leads to this war. So he is, it's symbolic that he's blind. He's sitting in his, in his royal chamber and this terrible war is going to happen which will lead to the destruction of their clan and everything for, for that throne. And he asks his trusted advisor, Sanjaya, what happened? Tell me what's happening. What did they do? What's happening? And Sanjaya had been blessed with um, what I can only call, like Superman has what uh, this vision, telescopic vision or something, you can see things in a distance. And Sanjay had TV vision, you can say. Not that he watched TV, but he could actually see things going on in different places and report live breaking news to you. <laughs> so Sanjay is sitting next to the king, far away from the battlefield, and he's giving you, like CNN, you know, breaking news. He says, what happened was this, that Arjuna asked, drive my chariot to the middle of the battlefield, show me who has come to fight against me. And Krishna says, so be it. And he drives the chariot purposefully in front of the, the people that Arjuna are, is closest to. Because they're all his relatives. And included among the opposing ranks are his favorite grandfather, grandsire, Bhishma. Who, he grew up 
as a little kid, you know, in front of Bhishma. Bhishma is there to fight against him. Uh, Drona, his master, his, his teacher, Kripacharya, Dronacharya, his teachers. And he sees, he says, uh, he sees, I see all of these people. Arjuna is stunned. He, does, he suddenly realizes what he is going to do. He is here to, uh, for the kingdom, which is rightfully his and his brothers, truly. He is here to take revenge on the Kauravas for all the tortures they have inflicted upon the Pandavas. Uh, and so he's there to fight the battle. It's a righteous, it, it is very understandable. But he just suddenly sees, I see before me uncles and nephews and cousins and brothers and kinsmen and uh, my grandsire and, and my teachers, all those people who are beloved to me. And he says, I'm translating the uh, verses. Without whom life is meaningless. And here I am to grab the kingdom by killing my near and dear ones. What is this I am doing? No matter the cause is right. Because they, are, they were evildoers and it is a duty as a warrior to protect society from the bad guys. But still, what's the point? Even if I win this terrible battle, it will be an empty victory. Because um, those people for whom I would want the kingdom, they'll all be dead. So why am I fighting this battle? This is very bad. This is evil. It will lead to suffering and death in the, in this, uh, in, in the clan in the, and the royal family will be dissolved. I won't fight. So the first chapter, by the way, we are not going to study the first chapter. The first chapter sets their tone. The Bhagavad Gita itself has 18 chapters with 700 verses. Um, there's a little difference there. One verse may be extra or less, depending on the version you have. But that comes later. That will be much, much later. That happens in the 13th chapter. Anyhow, basically 700 verses divided into 18 chapters. But the first chapter, um, with 40 or little more than 40 verses, 47 verses, I think, has uh, just the background. Yes, 47 verses. The context in which Arjuna says, I see such and such person, he names them. So I, it's, it's a huge army of hundreds of thousands of people. So you can see the list is long. So he names them and he says, I don't want to fight against them. It'll, it's really, it's not worth it. And he drops his bow and arrow and he sits down in frustration, in, in sorrow. On one hand, he knows it's the right thing to do. On the other hand, he can't bring himself to do it. Krishna keeps silent. He's telling all this to Krishna. And remember, all of this is being reported by Sanjaya to Dhritarashtra, live. <laughs> Once in a while, the scene will shift back to the court, court room, um, the, the royal court of Dhritarashtra, where the old king is sitting desolate, and his reporter is telling him, this is happening, this is happening. Uh, then it shifts back to the battlefield again. It's very dramatic. Um, yeah, the drama is tremendous. I mean, in the 11th chapter, before that, Krishna has revealed himself to be an avatar, incarnation of God. Arjuna says, I believe you, that you are an incarnation of God. But I would like to see for myself. This is one thing that is common to religion in India, all throughout the centuries and millennia. Religion is realization, Vivekananda said. Not believing in something. Not, not subscribing to a doctrine. You must actually, if there is God, you must actually see God. So, like Narendranath goes to Sri Ramakrishna and says, have you seen God? Arjuna asks that same question. Thousands of years ago, he asked the same question. I believe you, what you said, but I would like to see for myself. If you think me fit, would you show me your real nature? You look like a human being now, but you say that you are an incarnation of God. Would you show me your real nature? And there's tremendous drama, and what poetry. Uh, 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, yes, I will show you. And he does. You know, there's a famous story of uh, Oppenheimer, the great uh, atom bomb scientist. When the first atom bomb exploded, he actually chanted from the 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita that I come with the brightness of a thousand suns. I come as time, the destroyer of all. So what a description of the vision of God. But it just terrifies Arjuna. So, uh, there's this, this a lot of drama there. Um, at the end of the first chapter, 
Krishna has not spoken a single word. Arjuna is now caught in a dilemma. He doesn't want to do it, but he knows he should do it because it's his duty to protect the good, fight against evil, and so on. Then Krishna sees what nowadays is called a teachable moment. <laughs> yes. So Krishna uses this as the teachable moment. Now Krishna will start teaching. One interesting thing you note. Krishna does not tell him straight away, you should fight this battle, those guys are bad guys and fight them. He, he, those are secondary things. He teaches him Vedanta. Arjuna asks something else. This is my dilemma, what do I do? Krishna does not answer that directly. He says, he first teaches him Vedanta. So that is the purpose. That is the, the context is this, but the purpose of the text is to teach Vedanta to Arjuna and through Arjuna to all of us, so that we can apply it in our lives. So the second chapter starts with Krishna beginning to speak. Um, second chapter is one of the, the two chapters are very important in the Bhagavad Gita. The second one, which where Krishna tells whatever basically what he wants to say, he has said. The second chapter, the whole chapter. He teaches first Jnana Yoga, the path of knowledge leading to enlightenment directly. He comes straight to the point. And then he teaches uh, Karma Yoga. Basically you can see these are the two answers, in detailed answers to the questions that M asks Sri Ramakrishna. How do I get God? How do I keep my mind on God? And the second question was, how do I live in this world? And the answers are Jnana Yoga, the path of knowledge and Karma Yoga, the path of action. And finally, the third, last part of the second chapter will be an enlightened person, person who gets this enlightenment you're speaking about, sthita pragya, of, of firm wisdom, established wisdom, established enlightenment. What is this person like? What's it like to be enlightened? That's the question that Arjuna asks. Then the next, the, the other important chapter is the last one, 18th chapter. So these two are very important. But in between, then what about the other 16 chapters in between? Um, 15 chapters in between. What are they? Arjuna asks a question and for clarification. And you will often find those are our questions. Arjuna asks questions, you know, that what we are thinking. Literally he takes it from us and he asks the question. You can see that how he's act, he is questioning on our behalf. So, and Krishna answers and each of them becomes a chapter. So that's how it will go. We are going to pick up from the second chapter. And um, we are not being lazy because Shankaracharya himself in his commentary, he starts from the 10th verse of the second chapter when Krishna actually starts teaching Vedanta from that verse. He starts there. He ignores the first chapter and also the first 10 verses of the second chapter. But we are going to start from the first verse of the second chapter. Before we do that, because we are starting Bhagavad Gita, it's a very auspicious time today. I will, it's customary to chant at least the first verse, verse number one, where the blind king asks Sanjay, news, yeah. <laughs> Twitter feed, what's happening? So he asks this. But it's a very famous uh, verse of the Bhagavad Gita, the first verse. Many people in India know this first one. They don't know anything else, but they know the first one. <laughs> Please repeat after me. This is verse 1, chapter 1. Dhritarashtra vacha, Dhritarashtra vacha, Dharmakshetre kurukshetre, Dharmakshetre kurukshetre, Samaveta yuyutsava, Samaveta yuyutsava, Mamaka Pandavas Chaiva, Mamaka Pandavas Chaiva, Kimakurvata Sanjaya, Kimakurvata Sanjaya. What does it mean, O Sanjaya? In the field of Dharma, what a beautiful phrase, Dharma Kshetri Kurukshetri. The battlefield is called Kurukshetra, it's near Delhi. It's actually a place, you can go there. So the battlefield is uh, Kurukshetra. Dharmakshetra, it is the field of dharma, of, of, of where right and wrong are decided. Basically, it, is, it symbolizes life, our life. In the, in the field of Kurukshetra, which is also the field of dharma, what did they do, my children and their armies, and the five Pandavas and their hosts? 
who had gathered for this awful battle they have got gathered for for fighting what did they do oh sanjaya tell me so that's how it starts nothing spiritual there don't look for deeper meanings there <laughs> now come to chapter 2 arjun expresses his that i don't want to fight throws down his bow and arrow and sits down in frustration in deep depression then krishna starts speaking so we'll start let us do a few verses of chapter 2 please repeat after me chapter 2 verse 1 sanjay uvacha tam tatha kripaya vishtam tam tatha kripaya vishtam ashrupurna kulekshanam ashrupurna kulekshanam vishidantam idam vakyam vishidantam idam vakyam uvacha madhusudana uvacha madhusudana So Sanjay takes up the commentary. He says, "Krishna. One of the names of Krishna is Madhusudana. Krishna, to that that person, Arjuna, who was grieving, who was uh, uh, nearly in tears, who had sat down in uh, in depression, to him, to who was overcome with pity and grieving, with eyes filled with tears and agitated. Who was this, Arjuna?" Krishna spoke these words. Krishna stood up for the first time. He started speaking. What did he say? Let us see. Verse two. Shri Bhagavan Uvacha. Shri Bhagavan Uvacha. Kutastwa Kashmalam idam. Kutastwa Kashmalam idam. Vishame samupastitam. विषमे समुपस्थितुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टुष्टु
So in this way, I, I know this is the cause of suffering. None of them really are the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is internal because I do not know the true, true nature within. But I think that is the cause of suffering. And I keep making adjustments in the world outside. Ultimately, I'll realize that this is not the way to true happiness. Then I'm helpless. There are terms for this. Karpanya. Karpanya means helplessness. Then I'm helpless. I don't know. I really honestly don't know what to do. Then I turn to the spiritual path and ask for help. So he has not yet asked for help. He's still in the first stage. He is in trouble. He is a mess. But he thinks he knows what is right. What is right is not to fight this war, though that's what been, we have all been building up to this. But no, I make a sudden change in the plans. I'm going to give all of this up and run away from the battlefield. That's the solution. That's what he thinks. Though deep inside he knows that's also not the solution. But he doesn't know what is the solution then. What's the point of it all? So he has not yet reached the point of helplessness. He has not asked for advice. And Krishna is very wise. He's, he never gives advice unless you ask for it. And ask for it, first you surrender. That I don't know what's good for me. Would you tell me? And I'll listen to your words with respect and give... And practice them in my life. Then he speaks. We are very free with our advice. Let alone somebody surrendering to you and respecting you and uh, promising to practice what you say. They have not even asked. And we are ready with all sorts of advice. We think it will be good for that person. As a result, nobody listens. Obviously. We ourselves don't listen to our own advice. So why should anybody else listen? <laughs> Krishna is not like that. He says, come on, get up. Don't give in to this kind of depression. Common sense advice. A sort of motivational talk. No Vedanta so far. In third verse. Klaivyam asma gamaf partha Klaivyam asma gamaf partha Naitatvayupapadhyate Naitatvayupapadhyate Kshudram hridayadaurbalyam Kshudram hridayadaurbalyam Tyaktvottishtha parantapa Tyaktvottishtha parantapa He um, calls Arjuna. They had many names at that time. So... So do we. These days also people have one name for Facebook, one name for... Different names are there. So, so like that, Arjuna, Partha is one, uh, one name for uh, Arjuna. Another one name Krishna uses is Parantapa, the scorcher of foes. Very psychological here. So he says that don't yield to weakness. Don't yield to unmanliness. It is not worthy of you. Shake off this... This small, petty, faint-heartedness. Arise. Take action. O scorcher of foes. Again seems to be a straightforward case of, you know, like a pep talk a coach would give before a big game. But Swami Vivekananda thought that this is a very, very important verse. He gave tremendous importance to this, this verse. I think it's one of the most important verses in the whole Bhagavad Gita. And why? He says... Unless you make up your mind to take action to make your life better, nobody in the world can help you. No Krishna, no Christ, no Ramakrishna, no Buddha, nobody can help you. No Gita, Bible or uh, you know, uh, any of the, or say like Tony Robbins, uh, Robbins or somebody, nobody can help you. Unless you take the first step, I am willing to change. My life is, I am suffering, I don't want to put up with this anymore, I am willing to take action. I am willing to stand up, yes, I will receive help. If you want to, I, I want help from you, but I am willing to change. Unless that comes, it will not work. Nothing is going to work. That's why Swami Vivekananda, he, you know, he powerfully said this. The old religion said, he who does not believe in God is an atheist. The new religion says he who does not believe in himself is an atheist. This conviction, Arjuna lost all faith in himself. 
this conviction that all right things are bad i can make things better let me learn let me put it into practice things will improve take action get up and start doing don't be paralyzed our swami used to tell us in so many interesting ways you know early morning we had to get up very early in, in the monastery there don't lie in bed thinking should i get up or should i not get up <laughs> jump out of bed immediately uh, we do usually the opposite that clock used to be there with the um the button snooze. yeah we would snooze yeah now this snooze button is there earlier the alarm clocks we used to when we saw there were like actually physical alarm clocks and they would make a great racket <laughs> now this is soothing tunes and jingles they play but i would shake and make a great racket and you would slam it down um one um, swami told me that uh, uh, if you what he did when he was first became a monk as a novice he took the alarm clock so it was not working but he would just open his eyes it's early in the morning 3:30 in the morning he open his eyes and just put it on <laughs> shut off the alarm and go back to sleep so yeah it would sound something like that <laughs> he then he said what he did was he took the clock and put it at the foot of his uh, bed so that he had to sit up and then he started thinking okay i would say that shows his greatness rather than the alarm clock <laughs> i read later on they invented another alarm clock it's actually you could buy it on the market um it's like a little toy a child's toy like a car you know the alarm rings and it drives off by itself so <laughs> you, you have to go and catch it otherwise it'll make that awful sound and it goes it scuttles around here and there so that you may be cursing and stumbling around in the dark but it will really wake you up <laughs> you have to take action somebody asked it is very interesting in the mahabharata itself before the war somebody asked why did krishna teach all this to arjuna who is the good guy if he had taught it to the bad guy it would have prevented the war so why did he not tell uh, teach it to duryodhana the evil cousin the truth is the fact is actually if you see the mahabharata krishna tried krishna tried he went to duryodhana he was the emissary of peace you know the famous episode and he went to duryodhana and he said look this is not good what you are doing this is adharma this is evil this is the path of evil it leads to destruction follow the path of good give your brothers what they ask for and they ask for very little give them their due and make peace with them you know what duryodhana said he said don't teach me and he said something that really touches our heart you know the eternal human condition he said to krishna i know what is right and i know what is wrong and i know what i'm doing is wrong i know it it's he admitted it look at the person how how what what kind of introspective knowledge he had self introspection i know what i'm doing he admits it i know it's wrong and i know what i should be doing then what's the problem the problem is he says i know what is right i don't feel like doing it i know what's wrong i can't stop myself from doing it and he says janami dharmam nacham name pravritti nacha pravritti नचमे प्रवृत्ति जानामि अधर्मम नचमे निवृत्ति केनापि देवेन हृदि स्थितेन यथा नियोजितो अस्मि तथा करोमि ही सेज आई नो व्हाट इज धर्म आई डोंट फील लाइक डूइंग इट आई नो व्हाट इज अधर्म आई कांट स्टॉप माइसेल्फ व्हाई कांट यू स्टॉप योरसेल्फ बिकॉज़ देयर इज दिस पावर विद इन मी व्हिच इंपेल्स मी अलोंग दिस पाथ इवन इफ आई डोंट वांट टू इट फोर्सेस मी इट्स समथिंग दैट एवरी एडिक्ट नोस व्हाट ही इज टॉकिंग अबाउट एवरीबॉडी हुज कॉट in this way knows what this person is talking about the interesting thing is why i am saying this is that in the gita you will see arjuna comes to this point and he asks this he says the same thing to krishna what duryodhana said but with one crucial difference he asks um atakena prayuktayam papam charati purushah o krishna why do people do wrong things anichchanapi even if they don't want to they know it's wrong they make up their mind not to do it but they do it 
they make a mistake again and knowing it's a mistake they repeat it again why what forces them and how can we change look at the way it was put duryodhana is not interested in changing arjuna says arjuna acknowledges the same problem that we it's very difficult to change ourselves why is this so and how can we change it that's the difference this is what krishna is saying get up and take action if you get up and take action if you decide i'm going to change my life even by the slightest you are in arjuna's camp this is what krishna asks us to do then vedanta yoga bhakti um, any kind of practice all of them become useful they all come to your help there are wonderful things available for us to learn and practice but we must make up our mind that we are going to do it something at least so he says do not yield to this weakness this this faint heartedness this meanness khudram is smallness arise arjun has not done yet now he will start from the fourth verse which we will not do now he will start presenting his case again what he said didn't you hear what i said and then he will say that um, i thought maybe it's better to give it all up but i really don't know i am confused tell me what i should do the moment he says that geeta really begins with the 10th and 11th verses of this second chapter so that's when uh, krishna starts teaching vedanta